0: This morning we're in Philippians chapter 2, and the focus of our study will be on verses 5 through 8, but we'll read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Paul writes, "'Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion...' Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus." who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Well, I've been in school most of my life. Even between the time that I finished graduate school and came to seminary, I was a teacher and so I was still in school just on the other side of the desk. And one thing that I learned about myself in all those years of education was that I am a visual learner. Now, I'd like to think that when somebody explains something to me, I can understand it okay, but oftentimes I don't really have a proper grasp on something unless I can see it. If someone's trying to teach me to do something, I usually ask them to do it first so that I can watch them and then have them watch me while I try it. I don't think that principle has been any more obvious to me than when I've been trying to assemble furniture like a desk or a bookcase. I open the box, I lay out all the materials on the floor, I take out the instructions and I read this, connect the three shelves and bottom panel to the left side panel by aligning the pre-drilled holes on the cleats of the shelves and bottom panel to those of the left side panel. Secure by inserting an Allen bolt through a spring washer and a flat washer through the pre-drilled holes in the cleats of the shelves and bottom panel and into the pre-drilled holes in the left side using the Allen key. And on the brink of despair, just as I'm about to decide that we don't really need a new bookcase, we can just pile our books on the floor, I read three blessed words, see figure one, and there's hope. I can see a step-by-step graphical representation of what it is they want me to do. The proverb, a picture is worth a thousand words, has never been more true than when I'm assembling furniture using an instruction manual. And as I follow the instructions and attempt to put this thing together, I'm constantly referring to the pictures and back to the materials to guide me. And we observe this reality in other areas of life. Just the other day, Dave Muxlow, who's one of our elders and uh, the head of our facilities department here at Grace Church, gave a presentation to the elders about some exciting new plans he has to upgrade certain rooms on the campus. And he was showing us pictures of what these rooms look like now and then would show us computer-generated images of what those rooms would look like once renovated. And I was amazed at the detail of those architectural models and blueprints. And of course, that makes sense. It's not like the architect simply explains to the contractor how he wants the building to look and then says, all right, have at it, go make it look like that. No, the construction crew is constantly referring to those detailed models and blueprints to guide them every step of the way as they build those buildings. Or to change the analogy again, if you've ever seen an artist attempting to sketch a landscape, you recognize this principle, does the artist look at the landscape maybe once or twice? fix the image in his mind and then bury his head in his canvas as he seeks to reproduce it? No, of course not. He's constantly, even moment by moment, looking from the landscape back to his canvas, from the landscape back to his canvas, seeking to paint with precision the image that he sees in reality. Well, what we have in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8 is the diagram for our instruction manual the blueprint for our construction project, the landscape for our canvas. You see, the Apostle Paul has begun to explain for the Philippians what it will mean for them to conduct their lives as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, chapter 1 verse 27. And in the context of the Philippians facing opposition from the outside world because of their commitment to Christ, living in a manner worthy of the gospel chiefly involves being united with one another. If the people of God are to have any hope of standing firm in the face of opposition, if they're to have any hope of propagating the gospel in the midst of a hostile society, they'll need to be unified. And so chapter 2 begins with a clarion call to Christian unity, which we've examined in detail. And last week we discovered that the means of Christian unity, the way that such unity is achieved in practice, is for the people of God to be characterized by gospel-driven humility, The key to unity is humility, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for our own personal interests but also to the interests of others. And so Paul, having commanded them to live their lives in, in a manner worthy of the gospel and having called them to unity through which they will be able to withstand opposition... And then having instructed them to be marked by the kind of humility without which that unity cannot be realized, He now, in verses 5 to 11, gives them a concrete example of that humility, a picture that is worth more than a thousand words. And not just any example, not just any picture, but the ultimate model for Christian behavior, the supreme example of self-sacrificing humility, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, if we are to accurately trace the virtue of gospel driven humility upon the canvas of our lives, we must constantly, moment by moment, bring our eyes upon the landscape of Christ's humility, of his example. The Lord himself taught his disciples this very principle on the eve of the Passover in which the master of the universe arose from the dinner table and girded himself with a towel and performed the task of of a slave in washing the disciples' feet. And He said to them in John 13, 13, you call Me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example. That you also should do as I did to you. And so it is in Philippians chapter 2, we're called to follow Christ's example. And though this passage reveals to us perhaps the loftiest and most precise Christology than anywhere else in the Scripture, speaking in detail about the Lord's pre-existence as the eternal Son of God and the mystery of the incarnation, His being fully God and fully man, having two natures without confusion, without change, without division and without separation bound up in a single person. Even though all that is here in this text, it's not Paul's primary point to discourse on the fine points of Christology. Those truths are there in the text and they are glorious. And we're going to study them. but we have to keep in mind that all of that theology is there to serve as an illustration, a magnificent illustration, an example, of the humility that Paul has called us to in verses three and four. We are to be marked by a gospel-driven humility, because we have been saved by a humility-driven gospel. The whole point of explaining the fine points of Christ's preexistence and incarnation is to demonstrate the heights from which the Lord came and the depths to which He humbled Himself in His birth, His life, in His death, in the service of others, so that we also would have the clearest picture of His example to follow as we pursue humility and as we pursue service to our brothers and sisters. And with that, I want to make a brief observation before we jump right in. I want you to notice how the Word of God weaves the most practical instruction with the loftiest and most unsearchable of theology. The most practical, mundane, applicable matters of Christianity like personal humility and the unity in the church are wedded to the deepest and most difficult doctrines for the mind to even conceive of. So many professing Christians say things like, I don't want to hear about doctrinal debates or theological controversies. I want practical living. I want a Christianity that that reaches me right where I'm at, right where I live, here, right now. My friends, in light of Philippians chapter 2, that is a statement of foolishness. There is no such dichotomy between theology and practice. If this passage teaches us anything, it's that a Christianity that is focused on the heart, that is focused on practice and on application, cannot be divorced from deep thinking and hard truths. They're woven together inextricably. It's by thinking deeply and by meditating on this difficult theology that we understand that the Christian life in its fullness and that we're equipped to live it in a way that is most pleasing and most honorable to God. And so because this practical instruction about humility is wedded to some of the most exalted theology about the person of Jesus Christ. It will be our challenge this morning to try to explore and understand that theology while also keeping the big picture in view. As we delve into the technical points of high Christology, we need to be reminded that this is not a cold, detached intellectualism or simply an academic exercise. No, it's, it's the summoning of all of the faculties the Lord has blessed us with in an endeavor to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because if we're going to truly understand the humility to which we're called, we've got to understand the example of that humility which we're called to imitate. And we'll examine these truths about the Lord Jesus Christ by hanging our thoughts on three headings this morning that will function as our outline. We're going to look at Christ's pre-incarnate glory, His pre-incarnate humility, and His incarnate humility. Again, His pre-incarnate glory, which is to say His exalted position in heaven before He came to earth as a man, His pre-incarnate humility, which we'll see this expression of His humility as God the Son even before He has come to earth. And finally, His incarnate humility, that humility that He displayed as the God-man while He was here on the earth. And because this tends to get a bit complex, I think it'll be helpful to just summarize what the passage is saying right up front, so that you can keep the big picture in mind as we examine the parts. Here's an excellent summary of verses 6 through 8 from commentator Moisés Silva. Hear this, he says, "'The divine and preexistent Christ.'" did not regard the advantage of his deity as grounds to avoid the Incarnation. On the contrary, he was willing to regard himself as nothing by taking on human form. Then he further lowered himself in servanthood by obeying God to the point of ignominious death. That's the passage at a glance, and hopefully that helps to keep it in mind, the big picture in mind as we go through the parts. So let's look first then to that divine and pre-existent Christ as we consider Him in relation to, number one, His pre-incarnate glory. His pre-incarnate glory. Verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, and a better translation of that would simply be Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God dot, 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 and then we'll stop there and, and pick it up after. So it's not helpful to translate that phrase in the past tense because Paul intentionally uses a participle in the present tense to express ongoing continuous action. Before he became a man, Christ was eternally existing in the form of God. And here we have a clear, explicit reference to the preexistence of, of Christ. Jesus did not come into existence at the Incarnation. Jesus Himself tells the Jews in John 8, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In John 17, 5, Jesus speaks of the glory which He had with the Father before the world was. And of course, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so even before His life as a man, this Jesus was existing. But how? In what state was He existing? What condition? Paul says in verse 6 that He was existing in the form of God, in the form of God. Now, this phrase is actually the first of many in this passage that has caused a lot of people to plunge into Christological error and even heresy. What does Paul mean when he says that Christ was existing in the form of God? Does he mean that Christ only existed in the the form of God such that He was like God but not really God? No. The word that's translated form there is the, the Greek word morphe, from which we get words in English like morphology and metamorphosis. Now the translation form is really unfortunate because form in English conveys the idea of merely the outward appearance of something. But there really isn't a better option in the English language. One Greek scholar wrote, form is an inadequate rendering of morphe, but our language affords no better word. So rather than a a single one-to-one word equivalent, we've got to explain what the term means. In Greek, morphe refers to the outward manifestation that corresponds to the inward essence the outward manifestation that corresponds to the inward essence or to the external form that represents what is intrinsic and essential. It's a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. So, Christ was existing in the morphe of God because His very essence and His being and in His nature, He was God. So this is plain from the text we just read regarding Christ's pre-existence before Abraham was born, I am, Jesus said, not only explaining there that He pre-existed Abraham who had lived 2,000 years ago or from that point, but also identifying Himself with the divine name, I am, Yahweh. That's why the next verse tells us in John 8, 59 that the Jews picked up stones to kill Him. They knew what He was saying. He was equating Himself with God. And of course, back to John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. In fact, we don't even have to leave our passage to understand that morphe refers to the essential divine nature and thus indicates Jesus' deity. Just later in verse 6, Paul says that Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality there is the, the Greek word isos from which we get the word isomers which you chemistry majors might remember, describe chemical compounds that have the same number of elements, same number of the same elements, but have them arranged in a different structural formula. On a chemical level, they're equal to each other, so we call them isomers. In order to switch from chemistry class to geometry, you might remember that an isosceles triangle is a triangle with two equal sides. Jesus is isopheo, He is equal to God. And when you consider such statements as Isaiah 49, 6, where God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. The conclusion is inescapable. If no one can be equal to God but God Himself and Christ is equal to God, then Christ Himself must be fully God. And if that wasn't enough, I've got more for you. As I said, Morphe refers to the outward manifestation of the inner essence and nature. Well, what is the outward manifestation of the inner essence and nature of God? It's glory. Throughout the Old Testament, as God's presence is described with His people, there's a manifestation of that Shekinah glory, whether it's the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire or the smoke that fills the temple and the tabernacle, or in Ezekiel, the bright light that goes up from the tabernacle, or the temple rather. You say, did Jesus exist in divine glory? Yes, indeed. We read it before. John 17, verse 5, Christ prays, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. In John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, Full of grace and truth. And not only this, in Isaiah 6, the prophet says that in the year of King Uzziah's death, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And there the angels sang to the one on the throne, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then In John chapter 12, John quotes this passage of Isaiah 6. And then in John chapter 12, verse 41, John says, these things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and he spoke of Him. And in the context of John 12, the Him is Christ. Isaiah 6, that amazing vision of the glory of God is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, behold the the pre-incarnate glory of the Lord Jesus, of your Savior. Jesus Christ is not merely a man. He is not merely a good teacher or an exemplary prophet. He's not merely God-like. He's not merely a God among gods. He is not the first created being through which everything else was created. He is not Michael the Archangel, He is God Himself, God of very God. Before the world was, He was eternally existing in the very nature of God, in the very essence of God, in the very glory of God. And keeping in mind the point of our passage, it's incumbent upon us to understand that it is from this magnificent height of heaven, of divine equality, in divine glory, that God the Son descended in humility. In this passage, the reason we dwell upon Christ's pre-incarnate glory is because we must understand how far He had come. Calvin puts it perfectly. He says, Since then, the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we, who are nothing, should be lifted up with pride. Well, having beheld a glimpse, then, of Christ's pre-incarnate glory, let's now turn our eyes upon His pre-incarnate humility, His pre-incarnate humility. I know that sounds strange to some of you, but stick with me. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So even though Christ existed eternally, even though he was existing in the very morphe, the very nature and essence and glory of God, even though he was existing in equality with God the Father, ruling creation in majesty and receiving the worship of the saints and angels in heaven, he didn't regard that equality as something to be grasped the text says. He didn't regard equality with God as something to cling to, something to take selfish advantage of and use to further His own ends. Rather, He humbly accepted the mission of His incarnation in which He would renounce the glories of heaven for a time, take on the nature of a human being and live with all the restrictions of what it meant to be human. Though He had every right to continue in unlimited manifest power and authority, in receiving the worship of saints and angels, in participating in the glory of His Father, in perfect face-to-face fellowship and unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, He did not selfishly count those blessings to be slavishly held on to, but sacrificed them to become a man and accomplish salvation for sinners." And he had to make that determination while yet in glory, while yet being pre-incarnate. Such was his pre-incarnate humility. He emptied himself, verse 7 says. He emptied himself. Now, This is another phrase that has caused many students of Scripture to stumble in the most unfortunate of ways. The Greek word is kenao. And I want you to remember that, kenao. That's where we get the word kenosis. And if you haven't heard that word, that's a word that English has borrowed to describe this passage. This passage, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, is often called the kenosis passage because it speaks of Christ's self-emptying. And so many theologians have asked, well, of what did Christ empty Himself? And the answers to those questions that they give almost always indicate that Christ emptied Himself of some form of His deity, that in some manner He ceased to be fully God in His incarnation. That's wrong. Some people believe that Christ emptied Himself of His essential equality with God, His essential equality with God, such that during the incarnation He was a true man but He was limited to the degree that He was no more than a man. Others believe that Christ retained His what they call essential attributes of deity like holiness and grace but gave up what they call His relative attributes like omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and immutability. So this is what we call kenotic theology, named after the term kenosis to empty. Kenotic theology, it's a a famous Christological error, and depending on how you take it, a Christological heresy. But not only, not only is it impossible by definition for the eternal, self-existent, immortal, and immutable God to cease to exist as God, But the rest of the New Testament causes us to reject such such views. In His time here on earth, the Lord Jesus never ceased being fully God or ceased being equal in essence with the Father. I'm going to repeat that. In His time here on earth, the Lord Jesus never ceased being fully God and never ceased being equal in essence with the Father. Throughout His ministry, He only reaffirmed those things. He told the Jews, as simple as it could be, John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And the Jews got the message because they picked up stones to kill Him for blasphemy. Jesus everywhere affirmed this. John 14, 9, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Even as man, the Son has authority over all flesh, John 17, verse 2. And when Thomas bows before Him in John 20, 28 and confesses Him as His Lord and His God, Jesus receives that worship. And of course, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' deity is revealed in visible form when He peels back the veil of His humanity, as it were, and lets His inner essence of divine glory shine forth. So Christ does not empty Himself of His deity. He does not surrender His divine attributes. You say, well, what did He empty Himself of then? Well, first we have to properly understand the term. Though the verb kenao means to empty, everywhere it's used in the New Testament, it's used in a metaphorical sense. In the New Testament usage, kenao doesn't mean to pour out, like pouring water out of a jar, as if Jesus was pouring something out of Himself. There's another Greek word for that, it's the word ekeo. It's used to describe such things. Romans five five, the Holy Spirit was shed abroad, poured out in our hearts. That's ekeo, not kenao. No, kenao means to make void, to nullify, to make of no effect. And Paul uses it that way in well everywhere he uses it. But for example, Romans four fourteen, where he says, "For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified." See, nobody thinks when they read that verse to say, well, of what was faith made empty? No, no, no. The point is that faith would be nullified. It would come to naught if righteousness could come by the law. So with this understanding of the word, it doesn't make sense to ask of what did Christ empty himself. Christ emptied himself. He nullified himself. He made himself of no effect. In fact, the old King James Version grasp this very idea in its translation. It says, Christ made Himself of no reputation. And the NIV also gets the idea. It it translates it, He made Himself nothing. So what does it mean for Christ to make Himself nothing? Well, the very next word tells us how He did it. And so much of the errors of canonic theology can be avoided by just looking at the next word. He emptied Himself taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. The word bondservant in the NAS is the Greek doulos, which we're all very familiar with. It means slave and is referring to the weakness of the humanity that Christ would would take upon Himself. And we've already spoken about the word form in the form of a slave back in verse 6. It refers to the outward manifestation of the true essence or nature. So, when you add that to the following phrase, which says being made, and that could even be translated being born in the likeness of men, it becomes clear. Christ made Himself of no effect. He nullified Himself. He made Himself nothing by taking on human nature in His incarnation. This is an emptying by adding. It's a subtraction by addition. He emptied himself by taking on the form, the nature of a slave, of a human being. You say, come on, is that, is that really self-emptying? I mean, is, that, is becoming human really such a, a nullification? And I love what Pastor John says. He says, in light of the profound reality of Jesus' full and uncompromised deity, His incarnation was the most profound possible humiliation. We may struggle to understand the gravity of such an emptying because we're already down here. But think of what he left. Here is the creator of the universe. Here is the possessor of divine majesty. Here is the Lord and master taking the form of a slave. It's striking to read the literature about what it meant to be a slave in that first century world. Listen to some of the things that I found. Slavery, one writer says, pointed to the extreme deprivation of one's rights. Another writer says, a slave is a person without advantage, with no rights or privileges of his own for the express purpose of placing himself completely at the service of all. And another writer says, a slave has the lowest position. He is powerless. He has no rights. He has no glory, no honor, only shame though all analogies will fall short of reality. Mark Twain's novel, The The Prince and the Pauper, may help to illustrate here. The Prince and the Pauper is a story about Edward, the son of King Henry VIII, who temporarily exchanged places with Tom, a poor boy in London. So the boys switch clothes, Tom goes to the royal court, and Prince Edward goes to Tom's house and seeks to cope with Tom's drunken and abusive father, along with the other miseries of life as a pauper. But during that time, the young prince surrendered none of his identity. He was indeed still the Prince of Wales and could have exercised his power as such at any moment that he wished. But his royalty, while fully possessed the entire time, could not be fully expressed as long as he had chosen to submit himself to life as a beggar. In the same way, in taking upon himself the nature of a slave, the nature of a human being, Christ fully possessed his divine nature and attributes and prerogatives throughout his sojourn on earth. But for the sake of becoming truly human... To be made like His brethren in all things in order to be a faithful and merciful high priest, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, He did not fully express His divine nature, attributes, and prerogatives. And that's carefully stated. He did not fully express them. They were veiled. There were certainly times when He did express them, such as when He, he reads people's minds, Matthew chapter 9, verse 4 or when he works his divine miracles that identify him as God. But the prince willingly submitted himself to the life of a pauper. He was not what he was in the glories of heaven. He was now fully human. Back to verse 7, being made in the likeness of men. The word likeness here simply means that in all respects apart from sin... He became like other human beings. Jim Boyce said, with the exception of being sinful, everything that can be said about a man can be said about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born, he needed the care of his parents, he had a a human body, Hebrews 2.14 says he partook of flesh and blood. And even though he never sinned, that didn't mean that he didn't have a body that was fraught with the effects of sin, with the results of sin, He got hungry, He got thirsty, He felt pain and sadness, He got tired, He slept, and He died. He didn't just put on a human disguise, He was human in the fullest sense. Let us marvel at the pre-incarnate humility of Christ. God the Son contemplated the riches of pre incarnate glory and nevertheless submissively chose to take on a human nature and the weakness of human flesh, to live and die as a slave of all. Verses 3 and 4 in Philippians 2 He was doing nothing from selfishness, but was regarding others as more important than himself. He was not looking out merely for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. See that pattern there? You see how he does, models for us what we're called to do? Could Jesus have clung to his equality with God? Sure. As eternal God, he had every right to maintain his equality with the Father. But for the sake of his loving obedience to the Father, for the sake of his delight in the Father's will, and for the sake of his love for sinners, he regarded those blessed privileges as something to be surrendered in the service of others. And in the same way, in the midst of a conflict with a brother or sister, or even a conflict with a family member, or maybe even a conflict with your spouse, though we might be right about something, though we might have a good case to make, we can think on the only one who ever had a right to assert his rights and didn't, And we can regard one another as more important than ourselves and give preference to one another in honor, Romans 12.10. Calvin said, He, Jesus, gave up His right. All that is required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves a higher position than we ought. The one who sustained all things by the word of His power was Himself sustained by the breast of a Hebrew maiden whom He had created. If God the Son has stooped this far, to what depths of humility will you refuse to stoop? Well then, having observed the pre-incarnate glory from which He came, And having observed the pre-incarnate humility in which God the Son purposed to lay aside His privileges to become man, let's now consider His incarnate humility, His incarnate humility, the pinnacle of His humility that He displayed as the God-man when He was here on earth. Read verse 8 with me. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That opening phrase, being found in appearance as a man, it underscores the reality of Christ's true humanity. It's just more emphasis that Christ was fully man. The word appearance is the Greek word schema from which we get schematics. It refers to the outward form that's perceptible to the senses. That would be in contrast to the other term, morphe, that we saw before And it's interesting, in fact, the two words are often used together in the New Testament to differentiate between the external appearance from that which is intrinsic and essential. So, one commenter put it this way to illustrate, a baby, a child, a boy, a youth, a man of middle age, and an old man always have the morphe of humanity, but the outward schema changes all the time. So because Christ was truly and fully man, he had both the morphe and the schema of a human being. The point here is that Christ appeared in a way that was clearly recognizable as human. Another commentator writes, solid empirical evidence led all who observed Christ to conclude that he was an authentic, not a counterfeit human being. So Jesus didn't hover three inches above the ground. He didn't have a golden halo around his head. He was a normal Middle Eastern man to the point that when he starts talking about how he's the bread of life come down from heaven, the people in the crowd say, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this the son of Joseph? Don't we know his mother and father? To the people he grew up with, he was just Jesus. It's amazing. Even here, there's humility to be admired in the majesty of heaven. To look on him would have been to look on the epitome of all beauty. But being found in appearance as a man, Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. But of course his humility didn't stop at merely becoming human. His humility expresses itself in obedience to the Father's will throughout the Gospel of John, which was written particularly to showcase Christ's deity, is nevertheless laced with these continual statements of Jesus' submission to His Father. John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And so on. We could keep going. But it's not as if such obedience is coerced. It's not a a slavish, begrudging obedience. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. But then to emphasize his obedient submission, he adds in the very next phrase, this commandment I received from my Father... So there's that beautiful juxtaposition of his obedience and nevertheless his willing obedience, his eager obedience. And that's the extent to which Christ's obedience has taken him, to the laying down of his life. Paul highlights the depth of Christ's humility in verse 8 when he says, look at the text, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Surely, As the eternal Son of the Father, Christ had always, from eternity, obeyed His Father with joy and and experienced the fellowship and the delight that comes from such obedience. But in His incarnation, in His earthly ministry, obedience to the Father meant greater and greater opposition to Him from everybody who was around Him until they would eventually kill Him. Obedience never looked like that in heaven. So here is humility shining like the sun in its full strength. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The author of life humbly submits to death, the one who is without sin humbly submits to sin's curse. The one who has life within himself, John 1.4, John 5.26, the one who gives life to whomever he wishes, John 5.21, humbly releases his grip on his own life in submission to the Father and in love for those whom the Father had given him. That hymn goes on to say, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." But it doesn't stop there. There is another step to go before the humiliation of the Son of God reaches rock bottom. He did not humble himself merely by becoming obedient. He didn't humble himself merely by becoming obedient to the point of death. The Holy Son of God, the Lord of glory, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we hit rock bottom. In that day, nobody wore a cross on their necklace. There were no crosses embossed on Bible covers. There weren't even crosses in churches like this one behind me. In that day, the cross meant one thing and one thing only the most horrific and shameful kind of death. One commentator writes The cross displayed the lowest depths of human depravity and cruelty. It exhibited the most brutal form of sadistic torture and execution ever invented by malicious human minds. Crucifixion was such a horrific way to die that Roman citizens were exempted from such a fate. Roman law forbade crucifixions for citizens and allowed it only for the lower classes, for slaves, for violent criminals and for traitors. Cicero who was the famous Roman philosopher and orator called crucifixion a most cruel and disgusting punishment, the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon the slaves. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. End quote. In fact, in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. It was not to be uttered in polite conversation. Cicero would also say, let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears. Why were they so exercised about this? In crucifixion, metal spikes were driven through the victim's wrists and feet and he was left to hang naked and exposed. No vital organs were pierced and so the victim of a crucifixion would sometimes hang there for days as his life slowly crept away from him. Because the body would be pulled down by gravity, the weight of a victim's own body would press against his lungs and the hyperextension of the lungs and the chest muscles made it difficult to breathe. So victims would gasp for air by pulling themselves up. But when they would do that, the wounds in their wrists and in their feet would tear at the stakes that pierced them and the flesh of their back usually torn open by flogging, grated against that jagged wood. Eventually, when he could no longer summon the strength to pull himself up to breathe, the victim of a crucifixion would die from suffocation under the weight of his own body. This was the most sadistically cruel Excruciatingly painful and loathsomely degrading death that a man could die. This is abject degradation. And there on Golgotha, 2,000 years ago, the innocent, holy, righteous Son of God died this death. God on a cross. The Philippians got the picture. This was the highest of the high, gone to the lowest of the low. And if he, the one who is worthy of all honor and all praise, could submit himself to that, can worms like us continue in selfish ambition and empty conceit? Can we continue to bicker with one another and insist on our own way, on our own rights? A wise man once asked, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? And as hard as it may be to believe, the pain, the torture, and the shame weren't the worst of all this. Deuteronomy twenty-one twenty-three states that anyone who is hanging on a tree is accursed of God. Paul quotes this verse in Galatians 3.13. He says, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Along with the pain and the shame, crucifixion also brought with it a divine curse. We need to dwell long and hard on what it meant for God the Son to be cursed by God the Father. He never deserved to know His Father's wrath. He only ever deserved to know his Father's delight and approbation. And there on Calvary, he was cut off from the apple of his eye, from the joy of his heart. And he was innocent. I can barely imagine the sense of bewilderment that the Son of God must have experienced when for the first time in all of eternity, he felt what it was to know his Father's displeasure. No wonder he cried out, my God, my God, why, why, why have you forsaken me? I can barely handle that thought. That was my sin that did that. That was my wrath that he had to endure. That was my frown from the Father, my alienation. That was my cry of dereliction. And my friend, if you haven't felt the pain of that thought in the depths of your soul, then cry it out with every fiber of your being for God to have mercy on you, you sit here dead in your transgressions and sins. But I beg you, oh, I beg you to feel it now, to cry out now in repentance and faith, and cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Turn from your sin. Abandon all your good works that you rely on to get you to heaven and beg for forgiveness on the basis of this death and the coming resurrection that we'll see of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust entirely on His righteousness for your salvation and you will be saved it's free. His death will have become your death. His curse, your curse. And his righteousness, your righteousness. What could be stopping you this very moment from seizing eternal life? And to my brother, brothers and sisters who have seized it, have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus. If he could come, from the glories of heaven itself all the way down to the abject degradation of the cross surely surely we can humble ourselves to be servants of all surely we creatures of the dust can surrender our rights for the sake of true christian unity pray with me oh father our hearts are full and weighed down by the thought that God the Son left everything that we long for in heaven and partook of our weakness, our flesh, lived as a a true man and endured your curse, our only comfort is to look ahead to verses 9 to 11 and to remember that following Good Friday came Resurrection Sunday and you, by the power of your might and him with the authority to take up his life, you raised him from the dead and that he is alive today, forever existing as the God-man, highly exalted, with a name that is above every name, so that one day, When he returns, and we pray that you'd speed the day of his coming, but when he returns one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this Jesus, humbled to the grave, risen now to reign, is Lord to the glory of you, to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we love our Savior do work a miracle of regeneration in hearts of those who don't yet love him. And grant that that amazing example to which Paul calls us to imitate, grant that we would imitate it insofar as it depends on us to labor, striving with all of our might after a gospel-driven humility because we have been saved by a humility-driven gospel. We love you. And we thank you, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.